Deadwood Soundwell. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Not safe for work. Welcome to Not Safe for Network. I'm Biggs. And I'm Brandon. All right, Brandon, what you got today? We're going to start out with a, a deep dive here. I started thinking about James Earl Jones as he did the voice of Vader again. I got together a list of uh, interesting facts about James Earl Jones. Okay. Now, do we know, did he actually do the voice? I thought they did one of those weird things where they took existing clips of his voice. and You know, I don't know the actual answer to that. It sounded like James Earl Jones and... Even if he did the original recording, it's still James Earl Jones. Yeah, I mean, I think he's getting credit for it, but I was pretty sure they did trickery like they did with Luke. Like, I guess the last time they showed Luke on Boba Fett show, they not only faked his body, but they also faked his voice. They have some program now where they can just input all this audio and then actually turn phrases that sound like Mark Hamill. So I think they use the same thing for James Earl Jones. I think he's retired. Because, like, when he was on Coming to... America. They basically brought him in for like a day. They literally had him in a coffin. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like a vertical coffin, but he was like there the entire time. And I think they basically had like a few like actual shots, but the rest of it was pretty much just him doing voiceover work. Yeah, I think he's pretty much at the end of his career at this point. Yeah, so so I thought it was a good time to like bring up some uh, interesting stuff about James Earl Jones because pretty interesting guy. Okay. Um, I got to be honest. Outside of the roles he's taken, I don't think I know anything about him. And this list is a lot of stuff that is adjacent to his roles. The first fact I came across was uh, James Earl Jones and Carrie Fisher hadn't met until they did a cameo together on The Big Bang Theory. Hearing that said, it was never something I thought about, but I would have not been surprised if they never, ever met just because he's a voiceover. Like, I know that they brought him in well after they filmed everything with Vader, you know? Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of stories about it being David Prowse's weird British accent, and people would make fun of it all the time because he would, like, say all this stuff and try and do it with gravitas, and he'd pull it off at the body, absolutely. But, like, it just sounded ridiculous, and so they replaced his voice with James Earl Jones, which I don't think... George Lucas was ever intending on using his voice. (laughs) Like, I think the only time that happened was with C-3PO because Anthony Daniels had something in it and he kept trying to replace it and couldn't find it. And then a voice actor was like, you know, why don't you just use Anthony Daniels? It seems like it's actually working. And then he realized like, oh yeah, it does work. So he brought him in to dub his own performance again. (laughs) (laughs) They first met when they were filming that episode of uh, Big Bang Theory. Carrie Fisher was there first and James Earl Jones came in. So Carrie Fisher threw up her hands and shouted, Daddy. <laughs> it's hilarious. I thought that was a great little touch. Jones was the first celebrity guest on Sesame Street. No kidding. In 1969. Wow. They actually coined a term, the uh, James Earl Jones effect. Where, like, they would bring in, like, a celebrity to help boost the ratings. What's the cameo you remember the most from Sesame Street? Is there one? (sighs) 
not really. Mine is actually Star Wars adjacent. I remember C-3PO and R2-D2 being on the show. I remember it so well because I used to always hope that it would be that episode over and over again after I saw it because they reran it quite a bit when I was young. Growing up, he had a really severe stutter. Ah, kind of like Samuel L. Jackson. In fact, there was a period of about eight years he didn't speak at all. Like, wow. His stutter was that bad. When he was actually in college and studying drama, then he actually did some uh, voice lessons and actually got through it to where he could talk. It's kind of crazy when you think about how, I mean, he was a famous actor in his own right, for sure, but he's most famous for doing the voice of Darth Vader, and it's all about the voice. And the fact that he had a stutter and didn't talk for eight years, that's fucking nuts, man. Yeah. In a 2014 interview with New York Times, he was asked if he ever got the urge to prank people on the phone pretending to be Darth Vader. And he answered, I did that once when I was traveling cross country. I used Darth as my handle on the CB radio and the truck drivers would freak out that he was Darth Vader. (laughs) So honest to God, I've heard him tell that story before. He hosted Evening at the Improv, one episode back in the 80s. For older people, you'll remember back when stand-up started to become really huge. It was on TV all the time. And that was one of the shows that was like a staple. It was like the big show to get onto was that half hour on arts and entertainment. And he hosted one and told that story when he brought it up. And all it ever entailed to host that show was you went up to Mike and told the story in front of the audience that would hopefully make them laugh. And then you just introduce people. (laughs) Pretty easy gig, I think. One story and a lot of introductions. Uh, Return of the Jedi was the first film he got credit as Vader. That was a big thing with George Lucas. He was very adamant that he did not want anybody credited. He didn't want to take away from the magic of those things. And that's why if you look at the Star Wars holiday special, it says, and R2-D2 as himself. And like Kenny Baker was pissed because like they used a robot like Kenny Baker wouldn't be in it. But like he was upset that like they still weren't crediting him for what he did on the thing. And I think they had to like hand it to Anthony Daniels because of like contractual obligations on TV. Yeah, that was a big thing with George Lucas. And he refused to give David Prowse credit for a long time as well. Yeah. Quote from him was, uh, when Linda Blair did the girl in The Exorcist, they hired uh, Mercedes Cambridge to do the voice of the devil coming out of her. Yeah. And there was controversy as to whether Mercedes should get credit. I was one who thought, no, she was just special effects. So when it came to Darth Vader, I said, no, I'm just special effects. But it became so identified by the third movie, I, I thought, okay, I've been denying it. I've been saying it sounds like Jeffrey Holder, and I got away with it. But the third one, I said, okay, I'll let them put my name on it. Yeah. So it was actually a lot of his own requests that he didn't have credit for it. And if we're being honest, he's been in a lot of classic movies, but I mean, the Vader one is what everybody remembers first and foremost with James Earl Jones. Like when he dies, that's the first movie they'll mention in his obituary is Star Wars. I'm pretty sure. Technically has an EGOT. Does he? Yeah. I know he won a Tony. I remember hearing about that right before he did Dr. Strangelove, I think. He has a Lifetime Achievement Academy Award. Is, that still counts. Yeah. Did you happen to catch what his Grammy it was for? It doesn't say. That's what I'm really curious about. The Grammys are always the most suspect one in those things, unless it's a musician who you see winning them. You know what I mean? Because a lot of the time it's like, I'm going to do this spoken word thing. And then they just hand it to him because they really want to give him an EGOT. <laughs> <laughs> it's usually a thing like that. Yeah. He served in the 
army during Korea, attended ranger school, but washed out of ranger train. And he was a member of the Pershing Rifles Drill Team and Scabbard and Blade and Honor Society. He did not see combat, but was sent to his unit to Colorado, where they established a cold weather training command. So he was protecting the borders of Colorado during the Korean War. <laughs> you probably don't have to kill anybody to do that. Better gig. Do you know what his first acting role was on screen? Is it Dr. Strangelove? It is Dr. Yeah, Strangelove. I thought I heard that somewhere. Like, I'm pretty sure he won the Tony right before that. That's what caught Stanley Kubrick's eyes, as I understand it. And the fact that he had military training worked for him because that was a role he wanted somebody who knew what they were doing in uniforms. So he was actually doing Shakespeare in the park, and that's when uh, Kubrick found him. Okay. And casted him as uh, Lieutenant Zog. And so he's one of the bombardiers on the on the plane. What a weird name, Zog. Zog. Then, Lieutenant Lothar Zog is... But then again, I mean, Strangelove's a pretty weird name, too. <laughs> By the way, what does that title mean? Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? That doesn't happen in that movie. They don't stop worrying, and I think only one guy loves the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Riding it like a cowboy. Oh, yeah, him too. I guess there's two people that love the bomb, because it's also <laughs> that crazy-ass dude who wants to nuke every other second. He's a member of the NRA. Bummer. Yeah, he's from Mississippi, though, isn't he? Uh, I don't know where he's actually from, but his wife, Cecilia Hart, is a member of the anti-gun lobby. Interesting. <laughs> Strange bedfellows. <laughs> And that's what I have. Well, let's move on. So I wanted to hear your opinion on Prey since we talked about it last week. I didn't want to edge you out of this. What did you think about that new Predator movie? I really enjoyed it. I do like the indigenous representation in that. I mean, I have friends that are native talking with them on Facebook and they really enjoyed how far culture has come, like where you have a Native American movie and it's not Dances with Wolves where 80% of the cast is white. Yeah. And not only that, it's a white savior movie too. Yes. I mean, there's the fur trappers that are white, but all of the native roles are native people. And like the lead actress actually- like Amber Mid Thunder or something like yes. that? When she went to audition for it, she auditioned both in English and Comanche. Interesting. There's actually a dub of it in the Comanche language. And I thought it was really interesting. Like, I mean, the, the Predator stuff was fun to watch, but like seeing parts of- traditional native culture, like becoming a member of the hunting class, going through that ritual and, you know, what it takes, like what you have to do. You have to actually hunt something that hunts you and you have to, it's beyond going out and just killing an animal for food. Okay. Well, I've got a quiz here. That is based around the Predator franchise, not Prey. I don't have any questions for Prey, but uh, I got 17 questions here. Why 17? Because I ran out of time. <laughs> <laughs> but this is multiple choice. I'm not going to do fill in the blank because that would be way too fucking hard. But the first one I think is going to be easy here. So who was originally cast to play the Predator? Was it Jean-Claude Van Damme, Matthew DeMeritt, Kane Hodder, or Mitch Cohen? I'm going to go with Van Damme. It was Van Damme. In fact, there's footage on YouTube of him running around and hitting a tree. Like, because <laughs> you couldn't see in the suit. And it just didn't work out because 
they looked at him next to Schwarzenegger and Ventura and Weathers, and they were like, he's not big enough. Yeah, like, and he's, he's just... got to be intimidating on screen, especially yeah. next to those guys. And the idea was he could use his martial arts and like be very quick and stealthy like a ninja is how somebody put it. But it just didn't work out, especially in the suit. And then Van Damme was complaining the entire time because apparently the suit was so hot that he would pass out constantly. <laughs> they also completely reworked it later. So the actor that they found would fit better in the suit. You can't do cocaine in the Predator suit? Oh, dude, it's the 80s. Of course they did cocaine in the Predator suit. (laughs) (laughs) There was always... a Van Damme amount of cocaine. Look, a common thing in the 80s when you were doing a creature feature was to do a mold of your face and then put straws up your nose, you know, so that didn't fill in your nostrils. But also, guess what went in those straws? Because it was the (laughs) 80s, baby! All right, so who played the Predator in the original movie? Was it Maurice LaMarche, Kevin Peter Hall, Angelo Rosito, or Paul Larson? I believe it was Rosito, wasn't it? It was not. So Angelino Rosito played Master in Thunderdome. Okay. And then Paul Larson played Blaster. (laughs) (laughs) So that was your two halves of Master Blaster. And then Maurice LaMarche played the voice of Chud King in Rick and Morty. So there you go. I was like, there's no way you know this guy's name, so I could just throw out random people here. See, I knew uh, Maurice LaMarche because he's done a lot of voiceover work. Uh, Makes sense. Yeah. Once you get into voiceover, dude. Okay. What was the original title of Predator? Was it Hunter? Spaceman from Pluto, Extremely Violent, or Tonight He Comes? It's either Hunter or Tonight He Comes. I'm going to go with Tonight He Comes. Okay, Tonight He Comes was the working title for Hancock. Uh, Extremely Violent was the working title for Last Action Hero, which was also a John McTiernan movie who directed this. It's Spaceman from Pluto famously was Back to the Future. So yeah, it was Hunter. Damn. There was a joke running around Hollywood that after this Rocky movie, he had no earthly opponents left, inspiring Jim and John Thomas to write Predator. Which Rocky movie was it? Was it Rocky 2, Rocky 3, Rocky 4, or Rocky 5? Hold on. Just in case you've always read it, not heard it said, Rocky II, Rocky III, <laughs> Rocky IV, or Rocky V? I feel like it's Rocky three because he just beat up uh, Mr. T in that one. Clubber Lang. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's a good guess, but it was Rocky four because he'd already beaten the Soviet Union at that point. <laughs> <laughs> when it, did Predator come out? Predator came out in 87. Because I thought Rocky three came out in 89. No, no. Rocky three is like, I, honestly, I think like 83, 84, somewhere around there. Maybe. Anyway. Uh, which movie did Predator director John McTiernan not direct? Die Hard, Copland, The 13th Warrior, The Hunt for Red October. Die Hard. Oh, I'm sorry. That might be his most famous movie he directed. He also directed The 13th Warrior and The Hunt for Red October. He did not direct Copland. John McTiernan had a lot of classics. He's like one of those names that a lot of people don't know, but then you look into it and you're like, fuck, dude, he was prolific. Uh, Which film's domestic gross for the calendar year of 1987 was higher than Predator? Now, mind you, for the calendar year of 1987, okay? Beverly Hills Cop 2, Crocodile Dundee, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, The Living Daylights. I feel like it's Crocodile Dundee. It's a good guess. 
It's not a correct guess, though. It was Beverly Hills Cop 2. I should add Predator was number 10 on the all-time grossing list for 87, and Beverly Hills Cop 2 was number 1. So there you go, man. All right, which actor woke up at 3 a.m. every morning to work out and pretended that his physique was natural without any training regimen? Was it Jesse Ventura, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bill Duke, or Carl Weathers? I feel like that is totally a Ventura move. All right, talk it out. Why a Ventura move? After his run in like both WWE and I think it was WWF, sir. Well, it was WWF (laughs) at the time, but it's now WWE. I'm not retconning that shit. He always seemed like he would make himself bigger than he always was. And so I feel like he would be the guy that would get up at three o'clock in the morning to do reps by the way do you have a jesse ventura impression this seems to be a guy who people can impersonate a lot you know it's been so long since i've actually heard him i don't think i could do it well it's been so long since i said (laughs) (laughs) all right uh it was not jesse ventura when i say the answer it's gonna be you're gonna be like oh yeah carl weathers have you ever heard carl weathers talk in an interview no, I don't he think just, I like, ever have. He talks so much shit about how great he is, but like there's always a wink and a smile when he does it. The example I'll give was they had this special on Disney Plus where they were going through each episode of the first season of The Mandalorian and talking about how to produce each episode. And with the first one, they were talking about Carl Weathers. And he's like, and I know they were talking about makeup, but ultimately I knew they land on what they did because you casted the face, <laughs> you know? And it was like, it said straight, but you look at him and there's this obvious thing of like, I know people are going to laugh when I say that. You know what I mean? Like, he's a funny dude. Carl Weathers is a really funny dude. But it's funny because like going through that list really could have been any one of those guys. I don't think it could be Schwarzenegger because if you think about it, he was known he, as he Mr. Was, he, Universe. He, he wouldn't be the guy. He would be the guy that would be up at six o'clock in front of everybody. Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like, he famously was a bodybuilding champion. So, like, he'd already put out a movie, Pumping Iron, with Lou Ferrigno, where he was, you know, working out. So, like, obviously he can't claim that one, but it could be any of the other three. I just think, like, knowing Carl Weathers like I do, that's the guy I'd go to. Although, if I'm being honest, I don't know shit about Bill Duke. (laughs) Uh, That is what I don't really know that I know he's in The Predator. That's a... (laughs) Excuse me, Predator. That's it. That's all I know about Bill Duke. Like, it it ends there. Okay, what color was the suit worn by Kevin Peter Hall during scenes where the alien was camouflaged? Was it orange, red, blue, or green? I'm going to go with red. That's a good call. Where'd you come up with red from? Well, I'm just thinking they're shooting the jungle, so green screen probably would be really hard, really hard to do. Blue was probably my next answer because I know like weather station stuff use a lot of blue technology early on. They sell a lot of green screens for home that flip and on the other side it's blue in case you have a bunch of green. Yeah. I've never seen them do red before. But red, I think the environment they were shooting in, red made a lot of sense because they had a lot of day shoots and night shoots. So blue during the day tends to get washed out, especially trying to contrast that against the green. 
So red is, I mean, there is not really a lot of things natural that would show up. And I think green is the opposite of red on the color scale, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So that totally makes sense then too, if you're running around a very green area to have red. I threw an orange there because the clip of Jean-Claude Van Damme smacking into a tree, he's wearing a completely orange suit. Because like I said, it was before they reworked the entire costume. So (laughs) apparently that was a part of it. Who scored Predator? Alan Silvestri, John Williams, James Horner, or Jerry Goldsmith. These are all titans in the the scoring, composing industry. I'm going to go with Alan Silvestri. Alan Silvestri. You are correct, sir. It was Alan Silvestri. He's like the dude that you forget is in a bunch of movies, and then you're like, oh, yeah. (laughs) Did Forrest Gump. I always remember that one. And then there's a bunch of them where I'm just like, oh, yeah, Alan Silvestri. James Horner, kind of the same. Yeah. Like, I remember he does Wrath of Khan. Then after that, I always forget the ones he's in. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, he did this one. He did that one. And then I feel like in the 70s, if it was super famous and it wasn't John Williams, it's probably Jerry Goldsmith. Okay, which actor was slotted into the script for Predator 2 when Schwarzenegger declined the part? Was it Danny Glover, Gary Busey, Adam Baldwin, or Bill Paxton? I think it was Danny Glover. Danny Glover? So the lead of the thing? No. If you had a second guess, where would you go? Because this is a secondary character in the movie, so. Bill Paxton? Nope. Bill Paxton's killed by the Predator on the on the bus. Yeah. Giving him that amazing triumvirate of being killed by a Predator, an alien, and RoboCop. <laughs> <laughs> that is perhaps Bill Paxton's biggest legacy he left us <laughs> when he shed his mortal coil. So what was the answer? Well... What do you think, Gary Busey or Adam Baldwin? I want to see how how wrong you're going to be. <laughs> I'm going to go with Gary Busey. All right, you got it that time. <laughs> and I didn't think about it till just now, but that's a Lethal Weapon reunion. Danny Glover and uh, Gary Busey. Yeah. Hell yeah. Which movies beat Predator 2 at the box office? So you can give me a yes or a no with each one of these. Home Alone. Yes. Rocky Five. Yes. Dances with Wolves. Yeah. Three Men and a Little Lady. No. All four of them were higher grossing than Predator 2. <laughs> By the way, Predator 2, number five. <laughs> so it's like, it's not like it did totally bad, but those four just destroyed it. Okay, which name is not the name of a Predator in Alien versus Predator? Scar, Totem, Celtic, Chopper. I'm going to go with Scar. Scar? Yeah, it's the name of the guy in The Lion King, right? Right. Nope, this is with one R. (laughs) Totem. I totally made up Totem because it sounded like a Predator thing. (laughs) Well, I mean, the new Prey movie, like, um, they first call him a Thunderbird, which was usually often included in Totems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But Chopper, dude, that's like the dumbest. That's the dumbest. Get to the Chopper. Get to the Chopper. (laughs) Which H.P. Lovecraft story served as inspiration for Aliens vs. Predator? Was it At the Mountains of Madness, The Call of Cthulhu, The Beast in the Cave, The Doom That Came in Sarnath? Sorry, The Doom That Came to Sarnath. That's a little bit different. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go with The Doom That Came to Sarnath. At the Mountains of Madness. Have you ever read an H.P. Lovecraft story? Have you come close to reading an H.P. Lovecraft story? No. I've watched the reanimator. 
that's the closest I get. <laughs> I think I watched one or two other movies. I mean, I watched Lovecraft Country. That's about oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which adamantly is not based off of it because he was a horrible fucking racist. So. Yeah. All right. Alien versus Predator Requiem had a budget of forty million. What was the gross? Was it one hundred sixty million, one hundred thirty million, sixty million, or fifteen million? I'm gonna go with sixty. It was one hundred thirty. It was an unqualified hit, no matter how much people didn't want it to be. <laughs> it definitely was on the plus side, but I'm like, I don't think it like was a huge success in my mind, but it was definitely in the win column. Yeah, over three times its budget. Not bad. What movie was Robert Rodriguez working on when he wrote the original script for Predators? Was it From Dust Till Dawn, Spy Kids 3D, Desperado, or Sin City? I'm really hoping it's Spy Kids 3. <laughs> Like he just, he's just he like, I'm like, so fucking tired of these kids surviving every situation. <laughs> I mean, I love working with Ricardo Monobon, but I need to kill some things. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was actually Desperado. He wrote it 15 years before it actually got accepted. He wrote it and showed it to studio execs and they were not impressed. <laughs> and then 15 years later, I guess you brought it up again and they were like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we could, we're about to lose the license on this shirt. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Do whatever the fuck you want. We have five years. <laughs> True or false? Ripley was in an alternate ending for The Predator. So that would be the new Shane Black one. I'm going to go with false. It I was true. Damn. Isn't that crazy? See, it was like a stunt woman playing Ripley. And that's all I know. I couldn't get. See, more. I was like, there's a part of me that like really wanted that to be true, but felt it was false and just kind of a red herring. But so I just realized that I forgot one of the questions. So we're going to go back to number four here. <laughs> Which writer played Rick Hawkins and was cast, he believed, to help punch up the script for free, which he refused to do? Was it A, Shane Black? B, Gareth Evans, C, Paul Greengrass, or D, Simon West? I'm going to go with Shane Black. It was Shane Black. So Gareth Evans wrote Raid. Paul Greengrass wrote the Bourne movies. Simon West did The General's Daughter. But yeah, Shane Black, like staple of action movies and Lethal Weapon. Maybe that had something to do with the Lethal Weapon reunion in part two. I knew Shane Black was adjacent to the Predator movies. And that's why I went with, uh, I don't know why I picked Die Hard in that one question. But like Shane Black, I know Shane Black's adjacent in one of these franchises. Yeah. So as a writer, like he trying, didn't write Hard, try, trying, to get, <laughs> trying to get him to do some rewrites. Makes total sense. Like, and I will say they worked together on Last Action Hero again, like him and John McTiernan. So I know that they weren't super happy with him that he wouldn't help with the script, but clearly he liked him enough to take his writing for Last Action Hero, which did not do well. But I think 90% of that movie actually has aged very well because it was the first movie I can really think of where they were like calling out tropes of movies and really like, especially like the action movies in yeah. particular. There was like stuff where like Schwarzenegger would run to a car. So like he's a movie star at first and then he gets pulled in a real world. When he gets pulled in a real world, he's trying to take this car. 
he goes to smash the window with his elbow and he's like ow that really hurts that never happened and that's like one of those things i was just like that's hilarious because that's always in action movies the one thing that doesn't work the cop having a cartoon cat sidekick that was fucking dumb (laughs) but the rest of it kind of great kind of aged well i saw it on hbo had no idea it was a bomb at first and just like thought it was great and then just over the years was like really people don't like that maybe it was just ahead of its time well there then there was a lot of people that had seen so many of the the big budget schwarzenegger movies when it first came out in the theaters the big reviews was it's not that blockbuster that people were used to schwarzenegger being in and people turned on that really fast i is what i remember happening yeah and then the second and third week, people that probably would have gone otherwise heard that, oh, it's not Commando 3. We never even got Commando 2, so that would have <laughs> been totally shitty just to go to part 3. That's like Leonard part 6 in this bitch, you know? Let's not put anybody in the <laughs> Leonard part 6 category. Well, what about Bill Cosby? He's the one that actually did it. I mean, he can, he can rot in the Leonard part 6 ben. zone, but... The Leonard Part 6 Walmart bin <laughs> of $2 DVDs. <laughs> no, he's in he's in the uh, dollar store $1 bin of movies. Yeah, actually, literally, because I remember putting a <laughs> post on Facebook one time where I went to the dollar store and saw all of his seasons of Cosby Show were for sale for a dollar. And I was like, you know you <laughs> fucked up when your entire seasons <laughs> of your number one show, it was like the number one show in America is $1, you know? Yeah. So I'm looking at this. Last Action Hero wasn't quite the end, but it was portelling it a little bit because then he gets like Beretta's Island, which like, I didn't even know that was a fucking movie. I've never heard of it. Yeah. Then True Lies, which is huge. True Lies was a, yeah. Junior, which is like, somewhere in between that when he started getting into like the comedies but like twins is the first time it's in the 80s it's firmly in his action run right yeah and so like people embrace it because it's also it's doing the old 80s movie thing of like every movie has to involve the mob somehow like it's a comedy like 90s as well The mobs running drugs yeah yeah yeah. there's got to be cocaine somewhere then he's got like a racer which i recall it was one of those ones where it's a hit, but not the kind of hit you were used to with Schwarzenegger, right? Yeah. I didn't and then know. Batman and Robin, which was a bomb <laughs> for <laughs> sure. Killed Batman movies for a few years. And then End of Days, which was another one where they're just like, I don't know. That I guess, wasn't very good either. I guess Schwarzenegger is done as a big hero. Then The Sixth Day. Oh, I don't know if I've ever watched that. I haven't either. I, I remember seeing the cover. I mean, I can describe the cover for it, but I don't think I've ever actually watched it. Then Collateral Damage. Yeah, another one. <laughs> then Liberty Kids. <laughs> he did two episodes of it, whatever the fuck that is. Then Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines. So it gets even worse from Liberty's Kids. <laughs> then he's an uncredited bar patron in the rundown which is bad dude he's uncredited in another action movie franchise you know yeah around the world in 80 days i don't know what that is is that the one with jackie chan no idea and then the kid and i never heard of it and then a five-year break which i'm assuming is because he He went into politics so yeah we're seeing that is like the beginning of the end he get he really gets like true lies and then his run as an a-lister is over 
he and America just doesn't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Got Carl here. Hey, how's it going? Hey, so you wanted to to review Sandman? They finally did it. It was uh, rumored to be happening for decades. I think the most recent one until this one that just actually came out was a film adaptation directed by and starring Joseph Gordon-Levitt, which would have been really, really bad. Yeah, I think Seth Rogen was attached for a while. I could see that. In a film version, and that didn't happen. Like, it's it's had a few incarnations over the years. Basically, uh, Neil Gaiman's killed every single one as well. He's had a hand in, like, going, nah, this one's not going the way we want it to go. And he finally sort of got a handle on television when he had a direct job show running Good Omens and kind of learning how to translate stuff from book to screen and also how to like to understand how things are going to be made so that he can not get railroaded on things like budget and whatnot. Like him just having a clearer understanding of how television works is going to make him a better person to do this. And it all kind of came together. He finally adapted it. It's one of his earliest works as well. It's like one of the first things he did, original things he did in comics. And it's a fascinating adaptation in that way because what Sandman, the comic, started out as and what it eventually evolved into are very drastically different things. Like it started out as a horror comic. That was its purpose. And so there's a lot of really kind of in the early volumes, there's a lot of really horrifying things. And uh, as the comic goes on, the story sort of evolves away from jump scares and horrific ideas and more into delving into the nature of gods and dreams and what those mean for people. And it turns into a really kind of wild story. Hitting the early stories with the mind of the older, having like learned all that stuff as a writer, he's able to sort of reshape his early volumes into something that hits the depths of the later comic book series right out of the gates, rather than having to kind of build into that. But it also means that you you lose a lot of the like shock horror aspects of it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you also lose the kind of gradual ascension into a more cerebral comic. I think there will be a slightly higher barrier for entry. Because you can start the Sandman comic and be like, oh, this is just another horror comic. And then as it goes along, if you stick with it, it like elevates your mind as you read it because the stories are very, they're pretty good. <laughs> like Neil Gaiman knows how to put a story together. Fuck, man. Everything he does with the gods and the way he reshapes them and and recontextualizes them for modern audiences while also capturing the history of where they came from. So you kind of have this duality there where it, the approach is from a modern perspective so you can kind of bridge that gap easier as an audience but then you're learning things you know you he the the norns or the hecate or like they have all these names you learn all the names of the three fates 
they introduce themselves and eat his snake that's a gift and ah, just weird shit man so you were saying to me before that like the first season kind of follows a pattern of doing older stories and newer stories in the comic uh it's actually it follows the comic almost exactly it it's the first two volumes are the first and second halves of the season and there were 10 issues that are covered and there's 10 episodes it's almost an episode and issue, but some stories are kind of shifted around and some other things are condensed. There's an episode, I think it's episode six, is an episode where he spends the day with his sister death. And uh, that story, there are some changes that are made to it, you know. And I think there are some things from a different death story that are appropriated and brought in, which means that that particular other death story probably won't be told. Because they already kind of farmed out the the meat of it. They took the good bits and shoved them in. And then, like, there's little shifts, like, uh, as death is collecting the souls of different people, she's talking to them. And at one point, she visits a, a baby. In the comic, you can... There's a voice bubble for the baby after the baby dies, like the soul of the baby going like, wait, that's it? That's all there was? And Death is saying, I'm sorry, you know, yep, that's it. That's all there is. And uh, in the show, you only hear one side of that conversation. You hear Death saying like, yep, sorry, you know, that's all the time you get. But it's a pretty goddamn good episode. The episodes as well, they really do tell a lot of different stories. So the tone of different episodes can shift rather dramatically. Like that first episode has a very different tone from this sixth one. And then there's another one that stuck out to me with this character. It's like 1482, I think. Death and Dream are hanging out and they go to this bar and they overhear, they just happen to overhear this dude be like, I think that death is a choice and I choose not to die and the people around him are like what the fuck are you talking about everybody dies and he's like well we don't know that everybody dies you know and so then death and dream kind of look at each other and they make this sort of wager because dreams like there's no way that this guy will actually want to continue living so he goes to the guy and he's just like uh hey meet me in this bar in a hundred years if you're so intent on not dying and the guy's like uh thinks he's crazy but just goes yeah i'll I'll see you here in a hundred years. And then cut to a hundred years later, he like goes to the bar and the guy's there. His name's Hob and Hob's like, his life is doing good. And then he's like, well, I'll see you in another hundred years then. And then, uh, he's doing even better. Like he's at the top of his game. And then a hundred years later, he's like miserable and sick and being like, do you know what it's like to starve to death when you can't die? And being that hungry, you know? And then he's like, so you're ready for death then? And he's just like, what are you talking about? I've got so much to live for. You know, and then 100 years down the road. And it kind of gets us back to the present. And it's just a fun story to see this guy that can't die and the evolutions and changes that he goes through. So is it essentially he can't die until he decides to die? Pretty much. That's what the wager is between the two? It's the wager... That well, the wager is is lost by Dream in the first hundred years because he bets death that this dude won't gotcha won't want to be alive, like after so long. And but then it becomes like the way that the wager is put into place is by basically death going. All right, you can 
you have now the power to choose not to die as long as you don't want to die. You won't die to that one guy. <laughs> I think that that character will be coming back later. I'm pretty sure he shows up multiple times throughout the series. And, you know, I'm not really worried about spoiling Sandman, the comic. But what the story ultimately turns into is the downfall and the death of Dream, the death of an endless. And it ends with him basically being reborn because there's always a dream. It's the death of the current incarnation personification of Dream is dying and being replaced with something new. And I think it is a commentary on how art changes and culture changes you know it's even in fables for gods um and the tale for thor over and over again he faces ragnarok and then he slays a serpent takes nine steps backwards and then dies and then is reborn it's, it's this immortal thing that right. he does over and over again and everything is cycles and stories are cycles so that's uh reflected in the overall story but the seeds are already planted in the very first or in the second volume there's a girl who in the comics she is the wife of a superhero and he is dead his soul never made it to the afterlife he wound up in this dream and she goes and lives in the dreaming with him and he impregnates her in the dreaming and then she gives birth in the real world to a boy named daniel this all happened while Dream was imprisoned because, you know, at the beginning, these cultists are trying to capture death and they screw up and they capture Dream instead. He winds up being held prisoner for like 100 years. And that's the first episode is yeah. him being imprisoned. And then Charles Dance is playing. The, yeah, uh, the he's magician. So oh, yeah, he's so good. Yeah, he's so good in Game of Thrones. <laughs> so he uh, then the next couple episodes and this is the first arc is him imprisoned. And then getting out and then recovering his tools, which it turns out are really just like his own essence that he has imbued into, formed into a physical object. And at one point, one of those objects gets destroyed. And rather than hurting him, it restores the, pa the power comes back to him because the reason why it was separated from him was because it was in a physical form. Physical form is destroyed, gets the power back. <laughs> the second half of the season is the first of many things that were issues caused by the fact that he was locked up for 100 years, not being the Lord of Dreams. Right, because nobody can dream, right? Like, it, it takes it away from them? Or does somebody else step into that void? Uh, dreams still exist, but, like, a bunch of dreams escape into the real world and a bunch of nightmares escape into the real world. And then, like, there's nightmares trying to act as dreams. There's something called a dream vortex that's is a, when a person, sort of one person in a generation is given this sort of power to become the center of the dreaming and uh it drops the walls between everyone's dreams and it's not a good thing so they need to be killed and because dream was locked up this one woman went into a coma for like 40 years and then didn't become the vortex and that got passed on to her granddaughter and that caused a whole series of issues that leads to you know, other things happening. So there's just like a lot of shit going on and picking up the pieces. And then also he has f ongoing feuds with his siblings. 
So, like, desire is just, like, an innately sort of chaotic, malicious person. And I think is partially responsible for Dream getting locked up in the first place. And is low-key trying to destroy Dream by just picking at him and picking at him. And is responsible for the Nexus being born as the granddaughter. Because that's all a trick. There's a, one of the rules is they cannot spill each other's blood. And that includes their descendants. And so Desire impregnates the Unity Kincaid is her name who was supposed to be the Vortex. So the granddaughter that becomes the Vortex gonna get killed by Dream. That would count as Dream killing Desire's bloodline. And that would be family spilling family's blood. And that would be really, really, really bad for Dream. And so at the last second, they're able to sort of revert it back to Unity being the Vortex. And he's able to kill Unity without breaking that rule how accessible would you say this is like if you haven't read the comics i'd say it's as accessible as the comics it's the same story so it's not like the comics you need to read first it tells the same story as the comics and i would actually say the comics are probably harder to get into because they are rougher around the edges at the beginning it eventually becomes this like grand story. The show is more streamlined from the beginning. It knows where it's going so it can get there easier. Yeah, and the writer has decades more experience telling a story. And he also has a lot more assistance from a whole new generation of writers and animators and actors. And the cast is phenomenal. There's this one guy in particular, Boyd Holbrook, who plays a nightmare named the Corinthian, who has a greatly expanded role from the comic, which is a very good thing because the Corinthian's one of the best parts of the comic. And my biggest complaint is that he's not in it enough. And so for him to have such an expanded role in the show is, it's just great. I heard Neil Gaiman saying he was helped tremendously by the pandemic. He had a lot more time for casting. Like, apparently, he knew who was going to play Dream right away, and Netflix was insistent that they just went through a lot of choices. And so they ran the gamut and stuck with his original thought. But then he was saying, like, death was a person that, like, they just didn't even know what direction to go and so they were able to look at like 5,000 people he did a lot of these through zoom but he said he got to run the gamut on every single character that they were casting so he thinks that like the delay actually helped them quite a bit in this case yeah well and it's funny there's been backlash of course and he's actually been very vocal on social media shutting down the backlash personally and we talked about this too like with death right like casting a black woman right because the character is commonly drawn as this pale white goth girl and actually was modeled after a real life lady who in like 2016 died of cancer tragically and of course because she's gone people are invoking her name like you know without her consent obviously she can't give it if she's gone and they're invoking her name and being like uh she would never approve of this because the character looks so different from her and it's like, she doesn't cop to your racism, you piece of shit. Yeah, you racists don't think always black find people an, can be goth? Racists like, always find crazy? an argument to, like, make racism okay. They're yeah. always like, no, 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 it's not racist because, and it's like, no, right. dude. Like, let's get to the core of it here. 
Like if he casted a redhead, it probably wouldn't be a giant dude. Right before this came out, he started doing the series as audiobooks. And the audiobooks have a pretty stacked cast with, like, pretty sure Dream is voiced by uh, Toby Maguire. Toby Maguire. Somebody like that. And then. Is it Andrew Garfield? No, it's not Andrew Garfield. Uh, Kat Dennings is the voice of uh, Death. And I actually, like, find that incredibly distracting. There's, like, a Dream uh, is talking to. I guess it's another dream. It's an, a dream construct. He's kind of a janitor of the the dreamland. His name's Mervin, and he's a jack-o'-lantern. He looks like a scarecrow that's like got a jack-o'-lantern for a head. And then there's Matthew, who is a, a regular person that died and was put into the body of a raven and sort of acts as a messenger and a, sort of an assistant for Dream. Helps Dream keep eyes on people in the waking world because Dream has no power over people in the waking world. Uh, he can appear to them and stuff in the waking world, but he has no real power. In the dreamland, he has all sorts of power. Stephen Fry is the voice of the Dream. Or he is the Dream. He he plays, him, plays it. It's not a voice acting role. It's a live acting role. So Stephen Fry, I'm trying to remember the name of the character. But I can't seem to. And what's interesting about him is as a dream, he started out as a place. And then when Dream got captured and Dreamland was abandoned, he was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna go see what the real human world is all about. And so he went from being a place to being a person. And he went and lived moved into this apartment building. <laughs> but then uh he's talking to Mervin, who is the jack-o'-lantern guy, and that's voiced by Mark Hamill. And then the Raven is there too, and that's voiced by Patton Oswalt. And none of them were in the room with each other when the scene was made. They were all recorded separately, so they never actually met each other. But pretty common with recording. Yeah, but uh, just like audio. a scene with Mark Hamill, Patton Oswalt, and Stephen Fry—that's pretty good. Yeah, combination of people <laughs> to put together, and uh, yeah, it was incredibly well adapted, and uh, I highly recommend it. I have a feeling it's. With Stranger Things ending, it's going to become kind of the new flagship series of Netflix. We'll and see. I think, like, I'll be honest, man. I think it's completely dependent on Generation Y and, like, what they gravitate towards. Like, they're the ones that make or break Netflix shows because they're the ones that are watching well, them, that's like, what four I want it to do. in a row. That's what I want it to do because, I mean, it's either this or more fucking Dave Chappelle stand-up specials. Yeah, don't need more of those. <laughs> all right. Well, um, I read a book. Uh, I read All the Marvels by Douglas Wolk. So it's pretty interesting. Um, it was so weird. We were just talking about how much content there is for Marvel. I went to the library and it just kind of stuck out to me because it was a big red book. So I was like, what's that? So basically, this guy talks about how there's 500,000 pages of Marvel comics up to 2017, which was when his research ended because this book came out a couple years ago. And it took him a few years to kind of compile everything and, and write it. He had parameters for this because I'm not sure it's possible to read like everything, you know, and he talks about like, how do I do this? He's like, I've read the Marvel Unlimited app. I like borrow comics from people. I was reading graphic novels, like any way he could get his hands on them. He was doing it. 
So what he put down as a definition was anything from 1961 Fantastic Four number one to 2017 Marvel Legacy number one was it had to be within that time period. And then one of his questions was, could the Amazing Spider-Man reasonably turn up in it without time travel, whether or not he actually does? So Marvel imprints for young readers doesn't count. Ultimate comics do And so his justification for that was like, for example, Ultimates eventually crashes into the the 616. He actually like read the entire arc. So that was very helpful. He talks about big arcs of stories, but then he talks about little arcs that maybe people don't know as a good way of contextualizing a lot of character stories Mm -hmm. and kind of the Marvel story and where it's going. Um, So this was just like a few things that I pulled out that I thought were interesting to talk about because I'm not going to rip apart this entire book. Highly recommend it. I read it so quick. Uh, it was like 360 pages and it it just flew by because it was a fun read. The Marvel Universe was named 616 and a Captain Britain story is a response to DC's Earth 1, Earth 2, Earth 3, etc. The implication of it there was that there was nothing special about this universe. And so I found that fascinating because a podcast we're both listening to, Curse of the Multiverse, they kind of talk about how one of the things you fall in over and over again with these stories is like, our little section of the world is the best one. And they were saying that with like Doctor Strange. But like the way that it started in Marvel Comics, that was not the implication. The implication was it's just another one, you know? (laughs) So I found that interesting. Something else they really spent some time on was like superhero comics have always been political. He states that like Captain America socking Hitler on the cover of number one a full year before Pearl Harbor, that's just political and that's in the 30s, you know? Yeah. Because they were looking at what the Nazis were doing and that was at a time when the U.S. did not want to enter the war. And so they were trying to like drum up support. And so they put Hitler on that cover. And that also crosses in a lot of interesting ways in the book. Like he talks about legacy characters, for example, like any character who takes the name of a previous character or is a play off of that name. And, you know, a thing that Marvel does is they'll like have a different gender, different race playing it. And so he really took apart that argument from people that were arguing against legacy characters. And one of the things they always say is like, why can't you just have an original hero? And his point is that in the last 25 years, there have been very, very few superheroes that ever took off that weren't a legacy character. Like if you give them the name of that, then it can sell really well. But if you don't give them the name, it just doesn't sell. It fails over and over again. So they understand that like, if you want to put diversity into the comics, you either have to do it with the side character. And if you want to make it a main character you kind of have to make it a legacy character so i found that interesting because i always kind of suspected that like they sold better as legacy characters but he actually had the numbers to back it up he starts out talking about the fantastic four and he said it really wound down after kirby and stanley quit and basically had the same four or five plots over and over again or the stories are paying homage to kirby lee's story all the way through until the 90s and then they start to play with it a little bit but basically that was a title that was just coasting off its name for 30 years (laughs) like coming from a guy who like read them all you know it's just like yeah we see it over and over again we go to planet there's something weird happening 
happening. Like the thing is suddenly doesn't want to be the thing anymore. And then he has an opportunity to not be the thing. And then it doesn't work out. And you just cycle, repeat, cycle, repeat, cycle, repeat. By the nineties, people were getting kind of sick of it. And then you start to get other people who have visions for it and doing different things. That's also when they aged up Franklin, uh, the son of Reed and Sue Richards. Mm -hmm. Like he was a kid forever. Like he was basically like a tiny kid. And then they like aged him up to like a teenager where he's perpetually remained. That was another thing I found interesting when he was talking about it was just like how characters age. Like most characters don't age at all in the comics. And then you get like Spider-Man who starts out as a teenager and he's in his mid thirties now. But then like you get like Kitty Pride who like starts out as a teenager and then becomes an adult and then they roll her back into being a teenager again. <laughs> and they go back and forth with her just depending on like what direction they want to take the character. They did that kind of with Iron Man as well, where like Iron Man kind of went evil and then got replaced by a younger version of himself who eventually became that universe's Iron Man as an adult. There's also Iron Lad, who is right. one of the variants of Kang. Because even Kang, Kang's like a good example of when you're immortal, you can't always be evil. You'll go through a phase where you're good. Right. Just to try it on. Yeah. Try, a try a fedora on for a little bit and see if you're yeah. a fedora guy. <laughs> nope, not a fedora guy. Back to evil. And No, but fedoras are a sign that you're... Not necessarily evil, but terrible. Yeah. Spidey's parents died because it doubles the impact of Ben dying. Basically, this means he's constantly worried about May and being presented with one bad father figure after another in the first phase of Spider-Man comics. Yeah. He's identified five phases. I'm not going to go through them all. I can't exactly remember them all, but I was looking at him. And I'm like, yeah, that feels right with a lot of them. But this first phase I found interesting because he just keeps looking for a father figure. And he says that like... For example, in issue number one, he sees Reed Richards, but Reed Richards rejects him, wants nothing to do with him. Then like Norman Osborn kind of comes in there and kind of acts like a father figure to him. J. Jonah Jameson, who's actually a good father, but despises Spider-Man and also exploits Peter, like making him work long hours and always screwing him for his pay. And then a lot of them are older scientists, like Peter's a scientist, or he's going to be a scientist, right? Like he's interested in it. So you get people like the Vulture who are like older and like scientists like all these people that went down the bad road but the one I found most interesting was he was talking about Dr. Octopus because he was saying that Peter would have been like Dr. Octopus had that criminal not killed Ben in the way that it happened. And I'd never thought about it that way, but it makes sense because Peter is a bit of an egomaniac when that happens. Like he's like kind of an incel, honestly, like he doesn't say incel in the book, but when you think about it, he's kind of an incel, like he's mad that girls don't like him. Like he's mad at his parents. He's just kind of mad at the world. He thinks he's smarter than everybody and above everybody. And then he gets his powers and then he's just like, thinks he's above everybody. And then he learns his lesson when his uncle, dies and that's when he starts to shoulder responsibility right but like Doc Ock never got that lesson like he suddenly gets this power that he invents and he's just like an egomaniac so I, I found that kind of a, an interesting thought yeah um, so another one is he's talking about Master of Kung Fu comics, which is uh, Shang-Chi's old comics. And uh, he was saying that those comics were always racist. But he was like, he goes through the letter. This is what I love is like the completion of this guy. He went through all the letter pages and is constantly talking about the letter pages. And uh, 
He was saying that the comic was always racist, but it took criticisms and constantly attempted to be better. It just kept missing the mark over and over again. So like an example is this one writer just stays after him all the time. And I did not write the guy's name down, but he wound up being a big comics writer. And apparently in Master of Kung Fu in the 70s, there was like... 10 to 15 different comic book writers from the future who were just constantly commenting on stuff. So like for some reason, this comic attracted a lot of creative people, but this guy was Asian and he kept criticizing him for certain things. And one of the things that came up was a skin tone because they kept coloring him yellow. And he was just like, this is racist. Why do you do this? And so like their excuse for a long time was that like, there's only 36 colors from the printer. Essentially they were like, we can't do him the same skin tone as the other colors. So then like they go to fix it. So they start making him orange. And then it's just like, no, dude, like just make him the same color as everybody else. Like, why did he have to be a different color? You know, but they did just kept stumbling over things over and over again. And it was funny because he kind of ended the chapter being like, this was the one comic I always told people Marvel will never, ever make this into a movie. And he was like, as of this writing, the movie's being made. <laughs> so <laughs> it's kind of interesting. And then I talked about the Thor thing already with Ragnarok, just coincidentally, when you were talking about Sandman. So I won't jump into that but four times in the comic he died like killing a serpent took nine steps backwards and then was reborn so that's happened every decade or so in marvel comics they repeat that over and over again um in 1980 bo derrick was to play dazzler but the project fizzled when she wanted her husband john derrick to direct it also, Francis Ford Coppola was in talks to make Doctor Strange in 1990 for one chunk, which I was just like, I never knew that. That's fucking nuts and kind of makes sense because that's in the era where Francis Ford Coppola is definitely trying to like work as much as possible to pay off all the debt he accrued from uh, Apocalypse Now. And then Chris Columbus was going to produce and direct a Namor movie in 2004. And Chris Columbus was like attached to Ghost Rider and all this other stuff. But like, I never heard the namor one and i think that's where the rights got all fucked up because they were with universal forever and I, I don't know if marvel's borrowing it or just gotten the rights back from it it's always been kind of murky but that would have been terrible right chris columbus like home alone guy doing that yeah no we i'm we're gonna be getting namor and black panther to wakanda forever and i think ryan coogler is a much much better choice for adapting that particular character yeah <laughs> and then the last thing i pulled out of here to talk about was uh it he was talking about how often presidents are characterized in marvel comics and the different way in which they did it but the the one i found really interesting was they never ever showed donald trump in marvel comics while he was president and that's the only president that they didn't do that with the only time he showed up in a Marvel comic was at some point in the 80s, Luke Cage lifted his limousine so that an ambulance could get through, and Donald Trump popped his head out of the window and screamed at Luke Cage that he was going to sue him. That's the only time Donald Trump has showed up. Makes and sense. It was pointed out that one of the presidents of Marvel Comics is Ike Perlmutter, who like is an advisor to Trump and friends with Donald Trump, and so he's pretty sure that's the reason why. Why Donald Trump never shows up in those comics. And he also had one very interesting thing when he was talking about the whole Siege storyline, you know, the whole thing with Norman Osborn taking over Hammer. And mm -hmm. it was interesting looking at that because he was talking about the steps in which somebody overthrows a government and turns it into an autocracy and how those comics follow exactly 
those steps to get there. Like it's a very common playbook. It's very known, but they went to the trouble to figure that out and then put it into the comics. And he said that comic was so instructive on the Trump administration, ironically, because the comics came out before the Trump administration. It came out in the beginning of the Obama administration. But then he also pointed out that like they have a frame with Obama where they go to great lengths to say that like Obama was only going along with it because his predecessor put them in place. So they were like kind of having their cake and eating it too a little bit at Marvel. But anyway, that's all I got on the book. Definitely check that out. Once again, it was all the Marvels written by Douglas Wolk. I think everybody is going to find something in it that's fascinating. This is probably a good podcast. (laughs) Quite a bit. And another thing. Well, never mind. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Take it easy. Please rate and review our show. Sign up for an Anchor account and you can leave voice messages through a link in the description of the podcast or you can answer our poll questions. Reach out to us through Instagram at redwood underscore sound underscore labs or Facebook at facebook.com slash redwood sound labs. Email us at notsafernetwork at gmail.com. Not Safe for Network was created and hosted by Carl Borneman, Brandon Beardsley, and Alex Small. Produced by Aaron Donaldson and Alex Small. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs.